And here we go again. Welcome to Splinters, the podcast for the Northwest Woodworking Studio. I'm Gary Rogowski. Happy to be joining you this last week of the year and taking on a very serious subject for me, a subject perhaps as dear to your heart as it is to mine. It's called resistentialism. Hear me out. Now, this is not a religion. This is not a an existential issue either. This is real. This is quite real. Resistentialism refers to tools and their ability to thwart our efforts. It is a, what's the right word for this? It is a spiteful thing that these tools do to us. Some might call them inanimate objects. I I think we know better than to call a tool inanimate. We ascribe feelings to our tools. Thoughts, emotions, desires. Why else would they want to jump off my bench onto the concrete? I know there's a certain amount of magnetism between concrete and tool steel, but nevertheless, they seem to want to leap off my bench. Well, these things happen. And I and I believe that it's fairly simple to ascribe this to a, a personal feeling, a vendetta against me, the tool user. Think of your own time in the shop and how many instances there are of things breaking just as you need them. They've sat unused, unbidden, calm for months, and then just as you need them, they break. This, I think, is a, is a form of, of uh, well, we could call it passive-aggressive. I, I, I don't know that my tools have, uh, have evolved to that level of meanness, spitefulness. One never knows. Resistentialism is described on the internet, the all-seeing, all-knowing internet, as the as a humorous theory. It's described as a humorous theory. I I take I take offense at that. There's nothing humorous about it. When my tools stop working properly, I am upset. The slogan: Les choses sont contre nous. Things are against us. And I think that's a fairly simple thing to understand. Uh, you may find it paranoid, but have you ever dropped a scrap of paper on the ground and then as you go to reach for it, it blows away and you reach for it again and it blows away? This kind of behavior is is manifest. It is it's everywhere. And uh, I, I just can't imagine um, ignoring the obvious evidence of this spitefulness that that tools have towards me. So <clears throat> I have adopted several approaches uh, in dealing with this, uh, this ongoing issue. Several of them involve drinking after work. That's after work. While I'm there, I am quite sober and ready to go to do battle with my tools, to have them perform the task I would like rather than the tasks they would like. But it's a, you know, it's a big job. You have to uh, you have to get ready for it. You have to prepare yourself for it. I understand that uh, some of us have more skills with our hands than others, and some are equally clumsy with both hands. There's a word for that, ambisinister. And if you are ambisinistrous, then you are um, capable of <laughs> hitting your thumb uh, 
with either hand on the hammer. That's that's pretty great. I mean, it comes, of course, from the root word sinister, which means left-handed. Yeah, you lefties, we know it. You have evil on your mind. But ambisinister means equally left-handed, equally clumsy, equally un, unable to to deal with this threat that our tools present to us. For those of you still a little unsure of this premise of mine, let me point out some obvious instances of this behavior on the part of tools. There is, of course, the uh, blood sacrifice that many mechanics need make to the wrench gods. Uh, The wrench gods, of course, are those that are in control of your wrenches and demand a busted knuckle when uh, loosening a a stuck nut or bolt. Um, This is a fairly common occurrence. It's it's well known. It's it's not not a surprise. When it happens, you go, oh, right, of course, I forgot. I forgot to to give blood to the the wrench gods. It's it's a fairly simple thing that, that we all understand. We understand it. We learn to live with it. There you go. In the in the wood shop, I think there are are some god or elf or some being that controls sharpness. Many times, uh, I, I offer a sacrifice to it, and um, no good comes from it. Sharp tools are an essential part of my life in the shop, and yet I can manage to run into a piece of steel or have the edge get gnawed on by a chunk of white oak and yes we have to start the process all over again there is something about uh, sharpness that is an elusive quality well difficult to maintain with any with any tool use we know of course that working with power equipment as some of us do that a quality dust collection system is essential i remember early on when i started i had a planer and no dust collector, so I used a broom to sweep out the chips. It was a shorter broom after several months, quite a bit shorter. In any event, that dust collection system is an essential part of my machinery now, and why is it that you go to do something good, you go to clean out the bag so you get better suction, better dust collection. You clean out the bag, you shake it out, you put it on, and then you turn on the dust collector to have the bag blow off into the shop like a balloon. Ah, yes. Why is that? It's happened. You know it's happened. It's happened to you. Takes off. There you have it. Dust collectors. Now, we do have several saw stop table saws in in the studio, and there's no question that they are uh, sentient beings. They know what's going on. We had uh, we had one once. This was our newer saw stop. And we put a new blade on it. And uh, in the middle of a cut, it would shut off. And I'd say, what? What was that? It just shut off. It didn't blow. I mean, if you don't know, the saw stop table saw is set up to measure capacitance. And if it senses human capacitance, it shuts off. I think that's an apt description of it. It shuts itself off. So if you're holding on to a board and your finger comes into contact with the blade, 
The blade senses it, sends a signal to the computer. The computer says, ah, we have an accident imminent. It shuts off power, throws a brake into the blade in milliseconds, faster than you can say, oh, oh, shit, and then drops the blade out of sight. But there's a loud noise accompanying it when the brake flies into the blade. And there you go. You're safe. Well, this saw was running, and in the middle of a cut, it would just simply shut off. It wouldn't throw the brake. It would just shut off. And I thought, huh. Well, I'll pay no attention to that. And we kept using it. Uh, My assistant, Zach, and I, we kept using it. Finally, one day, it... Zach turned it on, and as the blade was spinning up to speed, the brake blew, and the system shut down. And what it had been trying to tell us was that our brake, the aluminum brake, had been set too far away from the blade, and it was sending us a signal to which we paid no attention because we didn't know that it was a sentient being. How little we knew that we had to set that distance every time we changed the blade out. We learn, we humans... We're slow. Know, too, that the uh, saw stop senses capacitance. It's often referred to as the hot dog saw. And I took a hot dog and I held it down. I had an extra cartridge, so I was going to try and blow it off. And I held the hot dog down on my crosscut sled with a piece of wood, and I cut right through it. I was stunned. I said, wait a second, it's supposed to sense a hot dog, which is... Like me, right? It's long, tubular. Now, I held the hot dog with my finger next, and as soon as it came into contact with the hot dog, that's when it shut, blew off. So it's a conductivity issue. And if I'm holding a piece of wood, there's no conductivity, unless the wood is wet. And if the wood is wet, then it's conductive, and then you blow it off. Anyway, my point is that this machine, this saw seems to have uh, some sort of consciousness and uh, it was trying to tell us stuff and and we blithely paid no attention to it. So it goes. There are other instances, however, you've had them happen to you, where you are engaged in a struggle with a particular uh, inanimate object. Remember when cars used to be a little bit more difficult couldn't get them started, choke it up, and then you choke it down, and you pump the gas pedal, and you do this and that, and then you'd, you know, you'd try, and it would almost catch, and then it would die, and you'd start bargaining with it. Oh, come on, let me just, just this one try. Come on, if you turn on now, I'll, I'll treat you right. <laughs> or your sink, you're working on your sink, and you put it together, and just one little tiny leak, and you take it all apart, Put it back together again. One little tiny leak. And you're saying, please, please, I'll do whatever you want. Just just work this time. And we're, we're pleading with this inanimate object. We're pleading with this tool or object as if it cared. And it, I'm afraid to say, it doesn't. It will do what it wants to do. I'll, I'll tell you a story. Maybe you've heard this before, but it's, it's from my book, Handmade. It's a chapter called Jake the Mechanic, but it's it's about my tools. An accumulation of tools, of course, is standard. Once I realized that this was the work for me, then I also realized how many tools are required for any job. 
This is the first hook, of course, the tools. When I started to gather enough, I could walk to my bench and look at them all, this miracle of tools there on my wall. There are the important measuring and marking tools. The tape measure is for long measuring. The six-inch rule, my standard for measuring, my sterret, is for very precise work. It goes in my apron pocket. There are my squares, my straight edges, my diagonal rods, my winding sticks. Cutting tools seemingly have no end in sight in my cabinet. I have saws for rough work, saws for cutting joint, carpentry saws, coping saws, fret saws, back saws, both European and Japanese style saws. As for chisels, I now have only three sets that I use, but a fourth waits in the wings. <laughs> As I tell my students, hi, my name is Gary, I have a problem. I buy tools. I have chisels for paring, ones for hard chopping, chisels for carving, ones for delicate shaping. Hand planes, although larger, proliferated like fruit flies once I started to collect them. My planes for my dad are there, but they have been supplanted by the best hand plane in my shop, my Lee Nielsen low-angle block plane. There are smoothers and jack planes. A number three, which I love, a glorious five and a quarter. My long and very heavy number seven, which, once in motion, requires a calculation for stopping distance. The list goes on. Besides this miracle of tools, at the bench hung another incentive, the number of hats that I got to wear throughout a single build. There are so many jobs that a furniture maker must take on in the project. First, there is a design to be properly stolen, from good sources, of course. All design is a mashup of others' ideas, but choose good models and steal boldly. Combine a number of good ideas together to make this new design particularly your own. That's first. A design has to be had. Next, I needed wood. I had to go choose the lumber, the right material, the prettiest boards, flat, not twisted, without knots. Then I needed to get it home to my shop. Okay, I had the wood. Now I had to mill it into chunks, the right chunks. It's precious. Don't waste any. Where do I cut? What happens if the wood moves as I cut? This is another important job. Just It's another form of design. It's just done with a saw, not a pencil. Joinery is next. Which joints do I use? Can I cut them? Do I have the knowledge, the tools, the patience? Am I trying to make money on this piece? How long will it last? All these questions need to be answered. Then once the piece is assembled, I have to shape and sand it, add the magical details that will make it stand out in a crowd, and then put a glorious finish on it so people will want to touch it. All these tasks lie ahead of me. Yet I will get to none of them. They will all have to wait their turn. Time will stop if I cannot find my six-inch rule. I couldn't find mine one day. Now, I had lost things in the shop before. Some, they're lost forever, swallowed up in a pile of sawdust and then swept up, maybe. Or maybe they were stolen outright by the gremlins for their own heinous purposes. It's hard to know. I have searched for hours for things that were right on my bench. I have also found it important to look for a lost item immediately, while the trail is still warm. If I let even an hour go by, the piece will get farther and farther and farther away, and be a lost orphan out in the world somewhere. One day I put my six-inch rule in the back pocket of my pants instead of in my shop apron where it lives, because I was busy, because I was distracted, and the job was a bit late, perhaps, and I needed to move on and do the work and just get it done and make this cut, which I had to measure, and I did, and I often do this, you know, walk from one side of the shop to the other, and then I set down my earmuffs on the bench, and then I walk back to the saw, and where are my earmuffs, I ask. They're across the room on my bench, so I have to go back there and get them and start all over again and make this cut, and I stopped dead. Where's my six-inch rule?
It should be in my apron. I looked. It wasn't there. I went to the table saw. No sign of it. No sign of it camouflaged on its gray cast iron surface. I walked back to my bench. Nothing. I checked my apron again. Nothing. I looked on the floor under my bench. I checked what I thought was my last circuitous path. Maybe I'd laid it somewhere. I checked the other benches. The bandsaw. Not there. I spent the next half hour in search of a six-inch piece of metal going from bench to cabinet to machine and back again, and I could not find it. This is one of the most important measuring tools of my life at the bench, and I needed to find it. And I tapped my breast pocket, and it wasn't there. I looked at my apron again. I implored the tool gods. This time, I'll be good. This time, I won't swear at you. Just please give me back my six-inch rule. I wanted to weep in frustration. I wasted time searching. I swore out loud anyway. Cursed my stupidity. Searched my bench again. Walked and looked under the saw on the floor. Where could it be? I wondered a lot. And the cycle began again in earnestness because I remember being in a spot where I had once had it and then the sadness when the tool was not found there. Over to despair that it was lost forever, moving on to entreaties to the gods and to the tool thieves in my shop. I have left chocolate out for these damnable elves and then walked away in the hope that they would have pity on me. Give me back my tool, I cried out to them that day in anguish. And this pout to this fervent cry of mine made my nose runny. So I grabbed from my handkerchief in my back pocket. Oh, oh, <laughs> it was good to find it, but so sad at the same time. <laughs> to realize I was walking around with it in my back pocket all along. To realize I was walking around with such a dummy. Anyway, these things happen. You know, when you look around your shop, you could probably put a little tag on each one of your tools with a story that goes with them. Each of them will have a story. My hammer has done this. I tried to break this hammer once when I screwed something up. Never broke. Never do that again. And this hammer I bought somewhere I don't even remember where. It's got a piece of duct tape on it. I love the crap out of this thing. And I used it for shaping metal. And yeah, each tool that you have will have a story. It's like you put a little toe tag on each one. Here's my story. These tools are something. They're far more than just instruments. They are They are important. They are a symbol, and they are out to get us. So I just, I just want you to know that when you lose something, it's not, it's not you, it's, it's your tools. They're hiding from you, and uh, the best thing to do is, is to walk away and pretend that you don't care, and maybe they'll reemerge. Re Actually, what I do now, when I'm at the bench, and my bench is always packed with stuff. i got three or four projects going at once. And I'm looking for something, I don't move. I just stop and kind of straighten up because it's usually right there. It could bite me. It's usually right there, that tool. Resistentialism. They resist us. We know this. Do your best. Try to maintain a truthful peace with your tools because it's those items that we do need to create our work. And so we must maintain that peace, that... that detente that allows us to move forward. Thanks very much for listening. I'm, I'm sure you appreciate the feeling that went into this difficult podcast. In any event, check out the website, northwestwoodworking.com. Check out our videos on YouTube, Northwest Woodworking Channel. Lots of stuff there on sharpening scrapers and my trick for leveling chair legs. Please come by and visit us at the studio and check out my book, Handmade,
creative focus in the age of distraction. Enough commerce. Happy New Year. Adieu.